Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. My guest on this week's episode of the Blind Broadcaster Pod is the voice of the Tulsa Golden Hurricanes, Bruce Howard. If you have suggestions or guests you'd like to have on the pod, please email me at luther.king.tsb at gmail.com. Twitter, you can find me at king underscore tsb. And if you dare try to find me on Facebook, use the intro and information I used at the top of the intro. Basically, the email. If you like what you hear, please rate, subscribe, and review the Blind Broadcaster Podcast on Apple Podcast and your favorite podcasting platform. This is a Believe Podcast Network production. And now, to the interview with the voice of the Tulsa Golden Hurricane, Bruce Howard. Is that, well, I, I, you know, I just do the interview and then we just, they just fix the issues that need to be fixed and sure go from there. So, sure. <clears throat> episode number nine of the Blind Broadcaster Podcast interview version with the longtime voice of Tulsa Athletics, Bruce Howard. But if my math is correct, you and I talked over the phone yesterday, but we'll get to that in a minute. How did you get your start, and when did you know broadcasting was for you? Well, you know, most of us that get into this are, are huge sports fans, and, and, and as kids, we played all of those games. You know, I, I played any game that had a ball, a stick, a glove, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and so, you, you know, you just, you just love the games, and you realize at an early age – not at an early age, but, you know, some, at some point, all of us kind of realize we're not going to make a living at playing the games. And so sure. one great way to stay close to athletics and stay close, close to sports was to, uh, to get involved in, in, in broadcast. So it started for me, play-by-play started for me way back in my college days in, uh, you know, the late 70s. Um, and uh, and I've, I've been doing it ever since. Was there any opportunities at the high school you went to, or was it college where it really blossomed into something that you've done for over almost four decades now? Over four decades, I should say. Yeah, we didn't have any opportunity in high school, but uh, when I went to college, uh, then I had the opportunity to, to uh, you know, not only, I mean, the first thing I ever did on the radio was, you know, just a simple sports report, you know, two or three minutes long as a part of a newscast. And so, um, you know, really kind of like that. That was fun. But then when I got to do some play-by-play of my uh, college basketball team, that's, that's when, you know, I, you know, I kind of realized, you know, this is, this is, this is something I'd like to do. You know, this is something that's, uh, that's enjoyable. It's, it's not easy, uh, but uh, you know, it's something that, uh, that, that I wouldn't mind doing. And, and obviously then the, the career went on from there. So when you graduated college, what was your first broadcast job or did you have to take another route to get back into broadcasting? Well, I was uh, actually did work a little bit of, of part-time at a radio station uh, where my college was located along with the college radio station. So I got a little experience there and uh, immediately started working full-time in radio 
but I was hired not only as a sports guy, but you know, in, in small town radio, Watertown, New York, upstate New York, about 70 miles north of Syracuse, uh, I, w- I was doing everything. I did a, I did a DJ shift from three to seven in the afternoon. Uh, I did some news for that station. I did sports, play-by-play, reports, um, public relations, everything. You know, when, when you're working in small town radio, you do a lot of different things, sweep floors, whatever you have to do in order to, uh, you know, in, in, in order to, to, you know, to, to help out. And uh, so it was, it was something where, I was I was doing a lot of different things, but you know I was young and and it, and it was fun. So when you finished doing the radio shift in New York, when was the date that you decided if I'm going to get to where I want to go, the small town thing is good, but I have to figure out and keep my eyes open for better opportunities at the next level. Yeah, it you know. It, Luther, it kind of just evolved, if you will. Uh, while working at that station, I was doing, first of all, basketball, and then we evolved into a high school football uh, series where we did a game of the week, and uh, then and then a minor league baseball team came to our town, so I started doing baseball. So it kind of evolved where, you know, I was getting more experience in different sports, and that was a good thing. I was still doing the other things at the radio station, and as a result, as you know, from you know, from, from dealing uh, with, with different play-by-play opportunities, you run into other people. You run into, uh, you know, the folks that are, um, you know, that are, that are trying to do the same thing you're doing and, and, and in similar or even better situations. And one guy I ran into very early in my career was Tim Roy, who you may or may not recognize that name. Current voice of the Golden State Warriors. Longtime voice of the, of the Golden State Warriors. So Yep, I remember him. He was working in Utica, New York, and Utica had a team in the New York Penn League in baseball, and, and Watertown had a team in the New York Penn League. So I got to know Tim, and we became good friends. And, uh, you know, eventually as you, as you evolve and you start realizing this is what you want to do and you want to move up to larger markets and that sort of thing, you know, you start reaching out to the people you've met and the people you've befriended. And Tim was one of those uh, fellows, and he he moved on from uh, Utica to Birmingham, and then I ended up uh, eventually getting a job with the company he worked for in Knoxville, Tennessee. So eventually, you know, you use the contacts you have, you use the folks that you, you're that you're friends with to, you know, to try and find out what's out there. And you know, you you're talking about the, uh, you know, the the mid to late '80s at that point. So networking was something you tried to do, but you can't you you couldn't do it back then like you do it now. You know, you just didn't have the connectivity. <laughs> you know that you that you have today exactly because uh, so, i mean so it's like I, one know. one email one tweet bang yeah exactly it was one linkedin was, profile later and then all of a sudden you're you know going back and forth swapping tapes and swapping broadcast stuff like you know like i did with you right well it's yeah and, and back then it was mailing a reel-to-reel tape to somebody with a resume and all that if there was a job open so <laughs> it was it was totally different you know back then uh, the basics were the same. The basics of play-by-play and, and the basics of radio were the same, but but obviously we were not uh, at that point nearly advanced. You know, no cell phones, none of that sort of thing. So it was, uh, you know, it was it was interesting. It was, it, it, and and I had a chance, as I mentioned, uh, with the help of Tim, to be able to to get a job in Knoxville, Tennessee, and then then move to Nashville and eventually to Tulsa. Well, were you doing the same thing in Knoxville, or did you take? Tim Roy's job because I know you said that you know with the contact with Tim that you had 
you moved to Knoxville, what things were you doing in Knoxville? The same things you were doing in New York, or were there some other extra things added to your plate in Knoxville that moved you to Nashville later? Yeah, the the one good thing about moving to Knoxville was I was the sports director, and sports is all I did. So that was the good part. You know, I didn't have to do uh, DJ shifts or news or anything else. So I got to do strictly sports. And we right away established a, a series with the Knoxville Blue Jays and started broadcasting their games. And we did a, a high school football series as well. So we got, we got right into it at that point. And uh, I didn't stay in Knoxville for a long time, about three quarters of a year, and then moved to Nashville and started working uh, uh, in, in, in Nashville at a, at a place you're familiar with, uh, WLAC 1510, big 50,000-watt big AM boomer. Which is currently the Pfizer Station for Vanderbilt Athletics. Right football and basketball right <clears throat> so what were your duties at WLAC because I know you and I talked about this a little bit yesterday over the phone and you want to talk about name dropping man <laughs> yeah I mean some obviously some Nashville icons when I went to WLAC I, I went there as the producer of the talk show and the talk show was hosted by Charlie Mack Alexander who was a longtime voice of Vanderbilt did a terrific mm -hmm. job there and then Bob Bell who uh, probably had the best pipes of anybody I ever met in the business. Tell <laughs> me about it. Oh, my uh, Lord. You, know, you, want was, you want to talk about Nashville's version of Voice of God? You might as well just go ahead and put Bob Bell with the late John Facinda. Yes. Yeah. No, and he, and he was a really good guy and, uh, um, you know, God rest his soul. But, he, you no know, he, 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 was a, he was a guy that, uh, that I learned a lot from. Uh, and, uh, you know, working, but I was producing a talk show and occasionally doing talk show uh, hosting myself, uh, which, which was fine. I hadn't really done a whole lot of that previous to, uh, to my time in Nashville. And, uh, so got, you know, obviously some experience, uh, you know, doing that. And then, uh, you know, met, met a guy who was obviously very big in Nashville and in the rivals and the recruiting and all that sort of thing. Bill King was a, a young broadcaster at that point, mm -hmm. a guy who would come in and, uh, and talk with Charlie Mack about recruiting and, um, you know, a, at that point, as I recall, I think he was doing it for free. He would just come in and they would do a segment with him and he'd, and he'd leave. But obviously he has blossomed, he, you know, his career obviously blossomed yeah, because into, into quite a big deal. Yep, because he does a local morning show here. He used to be on CSXM for a while. He does right. his uh, college, you know, football morning show from 6 to 9 here. He was on the sports scene for a long time. Used to be a four-hour show from 5 to, I think, 8 or 5 to 9. And then it dropped to 5 to 8. But the sports team was on for a long time with Bob Bell, Bill King, and then others sure. that would rotate in later. But man, and, and and Luther, speaking of of name dropping, uh, when I was at Knoxville, when I first started going to press conferences with Johnny Majors and the football program there and that sort of thing, I run into this young guy who really had a good voice and he's really mature. And I thought, yeah, this kid's a this kid's a stud. Mm -hmm. And uh, I realized he's only a freshman in. At, at UT, his name is Mike Keith. Oh, uh, yes. You know, the voice of the Titans now. Yes, sir. Former, former number two guy for a season with Joe McConnell. Yes. And so uh, I get to he's know him, and he's, you know, he's really, really a good guy and gregarious and, you know, really mature for a freshman. I mean, you're talking about a freshman in, in college here. Great voice. And so I actually used uh, Mike, uh, you know, as a color man on my baseball broadcast of, uh, of Knoxville. In fact, I still have a cassette tape of me and Mike doing a game. 
uh, way back when. So, wow. uh, you now know, you, you now, okay. This brings up the question on football. Now this brings up the question. Did you guys switch off every three innings or did you have it where he would just do color or how did you guys back then <clears throat> with the Nacho Blue Jays work out the broadcast when you guys, would you guys switch off? No, I, I did all the play-by-play and he was the color guy, but you could tell he was itching to do <laughs> some play-by-play <laughs> and, and obviously uh, I was stupid by not allowing him to do it because he's really, really, he's really good. And he did, like I said, he did color and football as well. And obviously a well-versed broadcaster and he's had just a terrific, you know, terrific career. Uh, and I'm, I'm not saying that I taught him everything he knows or anything. He probably knows a lot more than I do about the business, but uh, oh, we're, de- we're definitely getting, a, we're definitely getting a few guys on this podcast. No yeah. No, yeah you know it, it, what I, what I'm saying is at the time he seemed like, what a great kid, you know, what mm-hmm. a really smart guy and all that and uh, well ahead of his time. And, and so when I call him a kid, obviously not a kid anymore, but he, <laughs> well, look at where he's, he's at now. <laughs> he's, he's obviously been, been absolutely terrific for the Nashville area and for the Titans and, and uh, some of the stuff that he's done. So I, I guess I could say I'm kind of proud of him because I saw, you know, I knew him as a, as a freshman in, in, uh, in college. So. And this brings up another question. Can you tell, I know you could tell with Mike Keith right away, but with the students either today or back then that you, you know, dealt with, can you tell whether they have, the qualities to be in this job or if you have to give them kind of a harsh reality check that maybe this is not where you need to be? Well, there's a couple of things you have to look at Luther. And, you know, the, the first thing is presentation, voice, inflection, uh, you know, how, how you present uh, audio, audio um, and, you can be really good at that and have a great voice and all that. But if you don't do the other work, if you don't do the prep work, if you're not detail oriented, if you're not organized, that comes out in a real quick hurry in this business. And I'm sure you've talked to a lot of broadcasters there, there, there are a few guys, there are plenty of guys with the deep voice and sound great and all of that sort of thing. But then once you listen to them for, for a period of time, you realize that they don't do their homework uh, that they're not well prepared and that sort of thing. So I, I think you have to have the entire package. Uh, so sometimes, you know, you might be wowed by a kid that comes in and then, you know, as you, as you watch them work and you see, you know, that's the next step is finding out, you know, whether they're, whether they, whether they have a good work ethic, whether they're detail oriented, whether they work hard at their job. And that's kind of the, the next step. Um, you know, I mean, you think about a guy like Joe Buck, mm-hmm. he was a young kid that got a, absolutely terrific opportunity because his dad was Jack Buck and he gets these jobs and people are kind of sneering at him because he got these jobs, but you know what? He's a great announcer. Uh, you know, he took advantage of those opportunities and worked hard and, 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 you know, look what happened in terrific career. But, you know, if he had been lazy and had been not, you know, not, not detail oriented and, and didn't work hard or whatever, he would have been drummed out of the business in a hurry. So, I mean, he, he, yes, he got the advantage of the fact that Jack Buck was his dad, but you know what? He, He's a good broadcaster. Who were the broadcasters you grew up on? And what would you say your style is that you've, you know, worked with over the years? I know you're still working on it. But, like, what would you say your style of broadcast is? And who were your broadcasters that you said, hey, if I ever get into this business, 
I want to be like them, but I want to create my own path. Yeah, that's a t- you know, to me, that's always kind of a, I don't want to say delicate, but tough question because yes, you want to emulate the ones that you think are great, but at the same time, you have to be yourself. So, you know, you have to establish your own style. Um, but you can certainly learn a lot from broadcasters. You can learn a lot from uh, listening to others, but you still have to establish your own identity. You have to establish your own style. And um, I, I didn't really grow up, you know, with my head under the covers with a transistor radio, listening to radio broadcast that much. Uh, in, in New York State, I was exposed to the Yankee broadcast quite a bit. And, uh, um, you know, I, and, I, and I heard guys that I thought were really good. Frank Messer, uh, Bill White was really good. Um, and then, and then Phil Rizzuto was really bad, but he was, he was a personality and he brought a different thing to the broadcast for the Yankees. So, um, you know, listen to those guys, you learn a lot, uh, you know, and, and, and through the years, obviously you, you, you fall in love with the guys like, uh, you know, Vin Scully and, and, mm-hmm. and, and other folks that, you know, you know, really, really do the, do the hard work, which is the, the background work to get you ready for a broadcast. And uh, like, like I say with, you can tell the guys that are prepared for a broadcast. And when I, when I talk to students about, about what I do, it's like, I ask them a question. I ask them, when are you most nervous when you're ready to go take a test here in college? And they look at me like, huh? And I go, when are you most nervous? And they go, well, what makes you most nervous when you get that test on your desk ready to go? And, and eventually one of them will pipe up and say, when I'm, when I'm, when I'm not prepared, exactly. And that's what I, you know, it's like, if, if you're not prepared, every, every broadcast is a test. And if you haven't done your homework and if you haven't studied and gotten ready for it, then, uh, um, you know, then, then it ain't going to work out very well for you. So you can tell by listening to guys and not the first five minutes, but you can tell by listening to you guys for a long time, whether they're prepared and whether they're ready. For me, the biggest thing when I, you know, do a broadcast, besides doing the homework, I always feel like I might be missing something, but I go with what I have, even though from time to time, being at the high school level, you're not going to get everything that you really need to know. But I mean, as long as I can keep the basics and as long as I have a good, you know, stat person keeping me up to date with the particulars that I need, I feel like I can get through it. Even though sometimes I'm flying, you're flying off the seat of your pants because you have no idea if you're going to be able to get everything that you need, particularly, especially if you don't know if the staff person is sitting right next to you, if they're sitting on top of the roof of the press box. Right. And Luther, there isn't a time that I go into a broadcast where I can't use the last five minutes, the last 10 minutes, the last 15 minutes to brush up on something investigate something, research something, sure. find another little stat somewhere that maybe I hadn't thought of. Um, you know, to me, it, I've, I've always been a guy that gets early to the site, an arena, stadium, whatever. So do I. But I always try to there just is, get there about two. Yeah, you know, I get, I get guys that, uh, I get guys that pick on me, say, Hey, games at games at four o'clock, Bruce, what, what time are you going to get there? Seven in the morning. And I'm like, no, six, you know, but uh, <laughs> just joking. But yeah, uh, but even even with that, even with the preparation you do and being there early, and um, you know, I, there there's a great feeling about being in the arena, in your seat or near your broadcast location with an hour before airtime, and you've got everything done, 
and not that you can relax, but it's a good feeling to know that you're ready to go. And now you can, you can even work on some more stuff. You know, you can even work on more um, esoteric stats or esoteric, uh, you know, investigation or research on something. And uh, so, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a certain, I'm sure you feel this way. There's a certain level of preparedness, if you will. Definitely. Some games you feel like you're just barely there. Mm-hmm. Other games you're sitting there an hour before and you're ready to go. And now you can do some other things, but for the most part, the important thing is that you're, that you're always working, that you're always thinking about how you can make your broadcast better. Definitely. Now back to how long were you in Nashville? And basically what you told me yesterday, you didn't move to Tulsa to get the TU gig. You moved to Tulsa to be the voice of the Tulsa Drillage. And how did yeah, that opportunity happen? Yeah, that's correct. I, uh, you know, as, as we talked, I was at WLAC in Nashville and, and doing the producer thing. And, and, and that was fine, but I really wanted to do play by play. And I'd gotten an opportunity a little bit to work with the Nashville sounds doing some substitute play by play work with them. And, um, th- their GM and eventually the owner is a guy named Larry Schmitto. Mm-hmm. And Larry's uh, probably a name familiar to, to folks in Nashville. Yep. And got to know him and told him I was interested in radio. And, you know, he had me do some sub substitute games. I did a little TV for the sounds. And uh, finally, in uh, the spring of 1989, I said to him, look, I want to I want to do baseball full time play by play. And so he said, well, here's what you have to do. You have to go to the you have to go to the uh, um, uh, the winter meetings, you know, and start applying for jobs. So I did that. And I ended up applying for many jobs, interviewed for several of them at the winter, at the winter meetings. And uh, um, what's interesting is I interviewed for Richmond and Pawtucket and Wichita and maybe two or three others. And I get an offer from a group that I didn't apply for. So, and, and, and what happened was the guy in Tulsa left very late in the process and he happened to work for uh, for for Larry Schmitto of Nashville. Um, his name was Joe Presser, and he was the GM of the Tulsa Drillers. And he he happened to uh, have worked for Larry. And he said he called Larry kind of in a panic and said, "Hey, my broadcaster just left. It's March, whatever it was at the time. Mm-hmm. You got any ideas?" And Larry said, "I got just the guy for you." And then obviously I interviewed at Tulsa and got the job. So that's that's how I moved to Tulsa was to do the triple the double uh, A broadcast of of uh, the uh, Tulsa Drillers, which at that time was the Texas Rangers. So that happened in 1989. And I'm trying to remember, was the voice the sound really that you subbed for Steve Carroll at that time, or was it somebody else that you subbed for? No, it was Bob. Uh, God, oh, I can't, uh, Bob remember? Jameson? Bob Jameson, yeah. Bob Jameson. I learned a lot from Bob Jameson. And it wasn't too long after that, a couple of years later, he got the job for the California Angels. So... Um, no but wonder Bob, why that yeah. voice sounded familiar, because I'm like, wait a minute, what are you yeah. the dude in, no, he may, it, because I remember watching the baseball season in 1982, but I think that was later that Jameson yeah. did the California games. Yes, correct. It was after I had left to Tulsa when he got the California job, but Bob taught me a lot as well. He was, he was a good broadcaster, and uh, so I had, I had subbed for Bob quite a bit, and uh, or at least some, and uh, so end up going to end up going to uh, Tulsa and and at that point they were the Texas Rangers affiliate and they're still and in I the get, Texas league if my math is right 
What's that? I think they're still in the Texas League, if my math is right. And yes, and they're affiliate now of the of the Dodgers. Yeah. But uh, in 1989, I go to uh, I go to Tulsa, and uh, had not moved into my apartment for very long when they sent me to spring training, which was a great experience. Uh, and then back to Tulsa after spring training, and my first trip back in those days, the Texas League had two divisions, and in one of the divisions it was Jackson. Mississippi, along with Shreveport, Louisiana, mm -hmm. uh, Little Rock, Arkansas, the Arkansas Travelers, and then the Tulsa Drillers, four-team division. So uh, my <coughs> first trip was a bus ride to Jackson, Mississippi, nine hours away. <laughs> How much do you feel – what did you feel like you learned from all the bus trips and different vehicle and different modes of transportation getting from place to place as the voice of your – as the voice of the double uh, A baseball team? Probably the biggest adaptation I had to make was to the 140 game schedule. I'd never done that before. Uh, when you have to do 140 of those things and you're the only guy, uh, <laughs> it's a long season. And that was probably the biggest adjustment, but obviously the travel was, was, was quite a, was quite an adjustment because, you know, Jackson, back in those days, you played your division opponent 32 times. So you took long, two, four long trips to Jackson, Mississippi, nine-hour bus ride. And, um, and, and you know, you'd finish up a game in Tulsa, uh, and the bus would leave at midnight. And at eight in the morning when the sun is up, you're still on a bus uh, heading to Jackson, and you played that night. So, I mean, that, 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 was, that was tough, you know, especially on the players to be able to – you know, play the next night in Jackson, Mississippi. But that first trip, Luther, that I, I, I went to Jackson, Mississippi and broadcast my first game and the first pitch to the first player that I ever broadcast for the Drillers was to a skinny, slender, 20-year-old Dominican by the name of Sammy Sosa. <laughs> oh, how much of a small world this really is. Yeah, he got a little thicker uh, <laughs> as, as his career went on, but he was a five-tool player, great player. And on that first team I broadcast for, there was Juan Gonzalez and, and, uh, and Sammy Sosa and uh, Bill Hasselman, uh, Dean Palmer, a uh, whole bunch of major, really good major league players that were on that team. I think there was 12 or 13 that made it to the major league. So it was a nice indoctrination into minor league baseball on a full-time basis and uh, had a lot of fun. Obviously, it's, you know, when you're when your day is getting to do baseball games, uh, I can't think of a whole lot that's better. So what were the double headers like? Are they still like the same as they are as they were then? Cause I know you still fill in from time to time and do some drillers baseball, but what was it like being the full-time voice compared to, you know, filling in from time to time. And if you had a double header on a particular day in a spot, cause I know now they do almost five game series in a lot of places. And I'm, I think almost every league, like the Pacific Coast League and a few others are official or exclusively at 140 because the, the PCO used to be at 144, 142, 144, something like that. But now they've gone to the 140 model. Yeah. Back then it was, it was interesting because you played, you played teams in your division 32 times. You played teams in the West division uh, 10 times. Um, so uh, the series actually, when I started, were six game series, which which I think are, you know, I don't think they do that. They well, I know they don't do that anymore. I think uh, every so often you would see a six game series if you had a double header. 
but that's that's very rare. Right, and the doubleheaders, like like they are now, were seven seven inning doubleheader games, and they generally didn't schedule doubleheaders. They just happened because of rainouts and that sort of thing. So, right. you know, having to do fourteen innings of baseball was tempered by the fact that maybe two days before or the day before, you know, you didn't have to do a game, you know, and you, <laughs> so because uh, it got rained out. So, um, yeah, it, those one hundred and forty game schedules, and and players could tell you this as well. You might go through that entire summer and have about what nine days off and 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 half of those days are, are involved traveling someplace because in the texas league you had el paso which is like 16 17 hours away by bus and then you had san antonio uh that was in the league you know at that point and uh wichita actually was in the the other division which was odd because that's only three hours away from tulsa but but at any rate and then, and then midland and those are all long bus rides so uh, it's Texas league is a tough bus league. There are, there are a bunch of them out there, but Texas league is at least at that point was one of the, uh, one of the, one of the more stretched out leagues. Cause you, you go East of Jackson, Mississippi and go all the way to El Paso. I think it was 1,020 miles or something like that. Well, now if my math is correct, the sounds no longer have to go to Minory, Louisiana, but now they have to go to somewhere in Kansas city, Missouri, somewhere. Because yeah. now the Zephyrs left to go to to um, somewhere in Kansas. Yeah. So, so yeah, it, uh, now. I I know Wichita's uh, picked up a Triple A team now too, and maybe and maybe Wichita. I, I think that was it. I think yeah. the Zephyrs moved to Wichita. I don't remember what they're called now. I don't know what they're called because I know that New Orleans was trying to either get a new stadium or they couldn't get it, and they just decided to uproot and go to Wichita, Kansas, or somewhere somewhere along the line. But those years, Luther, there were lots of great Ranger players that came through there. Pudge Rodriguez, two years after I joined the Drillers, came for a half a year, and he was, you know, Yvonne Rodriguez was was all that in a bag of chips when he was 19. You know, I mean, he was just unbelievable. And he's, he's in my vision, the best the best catcher in baseball history, especially on the defensive side. He I would so agree with good. you. He was so he, good. He could, I mean, there, I think there were a couple of pitches that I remember he would stop. I'm like, how in the world did he stop that? Because usually most right. catchers work their salt wouldn't even stop that. They would let it bounce before they picked it up. He yeah, would stop the, it before the, it hit the ground. And, and the thing about him that, that, you know, after he established himself as a major leaguer and as a great uh, defensive player and a, just an unbelievable arm, he just absolutely stopped a running game. You know, nobody tried to, you know, once he establishes himself, he didn't, nobody tried to steal off of him. Um, but back then, as a 19-year-old, I asked Bobby Jones, who was the manager of the Drillers at the time, I said, how, how, how good is Yvonne Rodriguez? And he's the best ever. And I said, you mean the best ever at this point in his career? And he says, no, he's the best ever. He's the best I've ever seen at this point. No, he says, no, you don't understand what I'm saying. He's the best I've ever seen, period, at 19 years old. I'm like, wow. You know, now, that's he, saying something when your manager gives you that high praise. Absolutely. Especially you know. early, because normally most managers don't even give you that. You have to right. earn that. Right. And he would, you know, I mean, as you broadcast the game, you would, and, I, and I'm sure this happened even when he was in the majors, it'd be like, oh, that guy had a great jump. He's going to steal that base easily. And then Pudge would put it right on the bag and he'd be out by three feet. So he was so good at that. And then the interesting part was once he went up to the major leagues, uh, our pitchers, the, the Tulsa Driller pitchers, had been so used to not even having to worry about holding the guy on that the, 
the opposition stole something like 21 out of 22 bags on Tulsa pitchers after he left because they didn't know how to, they were so used to having Pudge bail them out that, uh, you know, that they, uh, they, they ran wild against our pitchers until they adjusted. So he was, he was, a, he was a good one. And he's just one of a number of players that I saw go through the Texas Rangers system that, that were really, really good. So while you were working at the with the Tulsa drillers, did you know that the Tulsa play-by-play job would be open that you're, that you're currently working at now? Or how did that opportunity come about that you've been ensconced as the voice of Tulsa for 27 years now, or 28 Yeah, I, I actually did one year of sideline reporting for the radio network uh, in like 1989 when I first got there. So I knew the folks at TU and, and I knew the folks – uh, that worked in the hurricane athletic department and always tried to keep track and keep up with them. And um, when the opportunity came along in 93 um, and uh, actually the, the, the play by play voice was, was uh, uh, had, had, re- had kind of resigned and he had, he had tipped me off that he was going to resign and, and that, that he thought I'd be a good choice for the job. And so then I applied and at that point, uh, Luther, I you know was a lucky enough to get the job, and then uh, for a couple of years I was doing both the Drillers and University of Tulsa, and so I had I had essentially what you would call two very good part-time jobs. Mm-hmm. So, what was the turning point that made you say, "Okay, I've got to make a choice here. Either I can keep doing the Drillers, or..." I can keep doing the University of Tulsa and give up the Tulsa Drillers. Part of it had to do with family. You know, I had a couple of young kids, one born in 1990, one born in 1994. Uh, and the fact that the University of Tulsa decided to create a position, basically create a, a broadcast uh, coordinator position, if you will, or director of broadcasting position to bring the entire network in house and do it from within the walls of the university. So when they had an interest in that and I had an interest in doing that, that's when I started working full-time in 1995 at the University of Tulsa and, and basically running, you know, the radio network and uh, which didn't allow me to, to, to do all the, you know, to do all the games uh, for the drillers. So um, took that full-time job, uh, you know, didn't look back after doing that, you know, anytime you can get full-time job with benefits and all that sort of thing. And you're working, you know, for a university, that, that's a good thing. Yeah, it's a good thing. So um, it was a good, you know, good career move, you know, like I say, career wise, but also family wise and all that sort of thing. You know, when you're doing 140 games and you're, you know, you're away from home, obviously half of those games, you're not Mm -hmm. even in the house. But even when you're home doing games, you're still not in the house at night. You know, I mean, you're still not there for your family uh, from, you know, whatever, noon until, you know, 10 or 11 o'clock, even on a home game. So Right. Um, certainly for family life, it was better. So when you started at Tulsa, what was the tough, besides you were saying 140 games to the toughest transition, was there anything that was tough moving from AA baseball to college, or was it just, okay, I'm at a university now, I can do play-by-play, I can, you know, bring the games to life, and I don't have to worry about doing baseball, having to do lineup cards, even though we still had to look at rosters and things like that. But what were the, you know, pros and the cons of 
doing college compared to doing 140 games in double-A, even though probably the same prep goes still now as it did then. Sure. No, it was the same. It was pretty much the same. You're still prepping, but, but the whole rhythm is different like it is for different sports. I mean, uh, baseball is a long meandering, uh, river that has its curves and its eddies and its flows and that sort of thing. You know, football has a different rhythm. Basketball has a different rhythm. So, Definitely. uh, you know, it's, it was just adapting to, to, uh, you know, the, the college atmosphere, if you will. And, uh, and then it became, <clears throat> Came more a thing where you're doing you're doing a football game every week, but you're also doing coaches shows, and eventually I got into doing the TV shows and that sort of thing. So it just kind of evolved uh, into a different animal, if you will. And uh, um, you know, it's 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 not good, it's not better or worse than doing 140, or if you're in the majors, 162 games as a baseball announcer. It's just different. Uh, but the key is you're doing games, and that was the important part. And and uh, you know that's that's always the the part you get back to is the games, the games are what it's all about. You know, the games, the games are what, you know, makes the job fun. So do you feel like the, what has been the biggest change that you feel from when you started to now? Like, what do you feel like broadcast wise, the biggest changes or since you've been the voice of Tulsa? Well, I would say, you know, I mean, one of the things obviously is is access to information is totally different than it was even when I started way back in my high school days when I was doing games in Watertown, New York. I mean, anybody that's broadcast games on the high school level uh, and and then evolves into college or pro, uh, the the easier part, if you will, is the fact you have more information. You have, you know, in the college ranks, you have sports information directors and athletic media relation folks that are able to help you with information, give you information as you do your research. Back in the high school days, you know, you, you had a hard time even getting a roster out of some high schools or stats or any of that sort of thing. So um, I'm not saying that it's that it's a whole lot easier because you're still doing your prep and you're still doing everything you can to make the broadcast, you know, work and, and, and do well. But uh, the, the age of information is clearly the biggest difference from back then to now. Uh, even even back in the drillers days in the late 80s and early to mid 90s you had you had some of the places you went to little rock was one of them where they wouldn't even put out stat sheets you know they wouldn't even put out the current statistics and so you kind of had to keep your own stats you know that kind of thing so at least that prep work you don't have to do as much of that and you can dive into more stuff like storylines and you know and that sort of thing so you know it's it's changed a little bit and obviously in the age of in the information highway, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit different. And, um, you know, when, when, when you're able to uh, go research a player or, or a team or whatever, it's, it's a whole lot easier to, you know, to, to just get on Google and, and, and Google it and find out some information and then, you know, dive down that hole and figure out what you want to know and, 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 and how you want to relate that to the, you know, to the broadcast and to the fans. Can there be two such thing as information circuitry overload as a broadcaster when you're looking at players and it's like, why was this in the stat pack? Or, you know, when you're, when you're doing research, when you're going down the rabbit hole, can there be too much information as a broadcaster where you have to just basically sift and figure out what to keep and, you know, keeping information 
but what's relevant and what's not. Absolutely. You know, there's, uh, th there are stat packs, if you will, or, or statistical uh, game notes and that sort of thing, which will be 55 or 60 pages long. And so that's, uh, to use an old farm phrase, and I, I did grow up on a farm, uh, that's that you got to figure out what's the wheat and what's the chaff. Mm -hmm. uh, what's the important, what are the, what are the kernels? What are the nuggets that, that are important? Um, when I first started in baseball, you know, you'd, you'd have some, some guys that would say, Hey, this guy, you know, is, is, is three for 13 in his last four games, you know, and that's a, then a, that's an average of 248 or whatever. And his overall season average is 250. That's not a stat. That's not a trend. That's not anything other than what he's done all year long. So sometimes people will put numbers out just for the sake of putting numbers out. They don't mean anything. I look for things such as trends. I look for, uh, you know, things that are different or things that may uh, give you an idea or give you, give you uh, a, a concept of why a team has or hasn't been successful. And I'll give you a perfect example. If, if I'm looking at stats like, uh, like in basketball, you know, when, when a team shoots over 60%, they're, um, they're or, like 15, you know, they're like 10 and one if they shoot over six right, or they're, or they're 10 and two. That's, that's not as much of a stat that if they hold the opposition under 60 points, they're 14 and oh, to me, that's a big, that is a trend. That's defensively, that, you want to know like how good are they defensively? Because usually if right. you find out for me, when you, if you can get an idea of how much they score compared to how much you're giving up defensively. To me, that's a good, that's a good trend because you have an idea, even though it's not a major sample size, but over the season, that sample size gets bigger and bigger because you're playing different games, different teams and different styles. Right. And I, and, and, and my point is uh, when you're looking at stats, okay, a kid's averaging 15.7 points a game for the season and in the league, he's averaging 15.5. Well, okay. <laughs> that's, that's not anything you make note of because it's not anything different than what he's done all year. However, if he's averaging 15.7 points a game for the season, but he's averaging 22 points in the league, then that tells you something. You've been playing better lately. You know, that kind of thing. So, I mean, I, I always look for, for things that are a little bit different in the trends and, and, and try not to – Try not to do the mundane, but try to find out where those kernels and where those nuggets are. And, uh, and along with that, isn't worries in the storylines uh, of it's not all numbers, you know, in baseball, a lot of it seems to be, but you know, there's also the storylines and the, and the personal relationships that you might have with a, with a player or the things you find out about, about certain players and, and, and coaches and staffs and that sort of thing. So, I noticed over the last little bit, you've gotten the Eye on the Hurricane podcast. Was that something that you thought about doing, or was that an idea from the athletic department? It's like, okay, for those that can't actually catch the games on radio or tune in, you wanted to give something and more content for those folks that don't get the chance to listen to many of the games where they can stay up to date with their favorite team. Yeah, that's a uh, that's a good question. It is it is something that uh, probably if if I were to be critical of myself, it would be that I I don't embrace some of the some of the new technology as much as I probably should. Um, podcasts are something that it's just another way to reach fans, another way to to get the word out and that sort of thing. And uh, 
I had, we had not done them until this past year and a couple of different things were happening. And, you know, um, we thought it would be, would be a good way to, uh, to, to push more content out uh, and Learfield IMG college, the, the group that does our marketing and, and does all our, uh, you know, is basically in, in charge of the broadcast, if you will. Uh, mm -hmm. They've been pushing all of the power five conference schools and the group of five conference schools of which we are part of the American athletic conference uh, to do podcasts, you know, to create them. So they helped, they helped establish a template and do the, you know, some of the, um, some of the nice ins and outs, the intros, the outros and that sort of thing. And uh, so that made it a natural that we would, we would go ahead and do it. And that's a, that's an area that just is, is pretty much evolving. It's there's, there's no finite, you know, two hour window that you have to, you know, they have to fit into it's, it, you know, it can be as long or as short as you know, as, <laughs> as you want it to be. And mm -hmm. uh, so there's a certain uh, wide berth you have on it. And the important thing is to try to make the content interesting and, uh, and fascinating so that people, you know, are able to, are able to click in and, and, and want to listen to it. So to me, that's always, I'm sure that's always the challenge as it is, I'm sure for you. Definitely. I mean, cause just trying to get people and hopefully, you know, they enjoy what they enjoy and hopefully, you know, it's good content and folks get to know these people besides being behind a mic, like you and I are doing games and things like that. Like, right. You know, like what are these people like off mic, like besides the career and everything else, like who are these people that I listen to on a weekend, week out, day in, day out basis instead of just, Oh, I just hear them on the, I just hear them, you know, behind the headset mic. Like this is the easiest job in the world. It's not the easiest job in the world. I can tell you that right now. It's not easy, even for you. I mean, with all with all the game prep you have to do and things like that, it's not easy. No, it's not easy, uh, and it's and it certainly it certainly is it certainly is a job. But it's a job that, uh, as the guy said, if you if you really enjoy what you're doing and you have fun doing it, then you never work a day in your life. So, um, yeah. It, in, in the podcasts are interesting. And I, 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 I will say this, I'm not a big podcast listener. I mean, I don't, I don't download a lot of them. I've got a lot of friends that do. I've got a lot of folks that, that do nothing but listen to podcasts. They don't listen to radio at all. But I, um, uh, I do tend to listen to a podcast and, and Luther, I, I hope this doesn't offend you or anything, but, but when I, when I hear a podcast that starts in the first two minutes is about, you know, what happened with their dog and they almost ran into a guy on the way to work and all that sort of thing. <laughs> Who I cares? Just, I, I'm, yeah, I'm just not interested in that. I mean, I, I, I'm a big history buff, and there was a podcast about Civil War that was on. In the first 10 minutes, they were talking about their dog. And I'm like, you know, and again, not, not to be offensive. Uh, I don't want to be offensive to anybody that creates a podcast and kind of yucks it up a little bit, but I'm just not interested in that. I want to. I want to hear about General Sherman, and I want to hear about General Grant and Lee, and all of that stuff that happened in the Civil War. Because that's why I clicked into the podcast. I want to hear about your dog. <laughs> I've, you know, I've I've gotten into the pod history this week. I mean, it especially comes out on Mondays. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. No. I. You know. I. I guess my. I, I guess my issue is yes, kind of relax and do your podcast and that sort of thing, but get to the subjects. You know. Get, get Agree. There, what that, that's what, that's why the wonderful invention called the fast forward button. Yes. <laughs> Especially yep. on the iPhone. You can just yep. go click and go right where you need to go. 
but but I, you know, and, and you you know more about podcasts, or you've forgotten more about podcasts than I know, Luther. I'm sure. So I'm. Oh, here's I'm, the thing. I you know I'm what? Still waiting into podcasts. So I'm, you know I'm no expert. I didn't even. The thing is, when it came to podcasts, I didn't listen to many of them at all. I mean, I I just you know had a friend of mine just you know give me suggestions to listen to podcasts, and I've listened to pods since then. But you know there are just some pods that I really can't get into. Well, they have to serve an interest and they have to be compelling and, or else they're probably not going to be successful. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of the, um, to me, that's a little bit of my outlook on, on podcasts is they have to, they have to serve somebody. They have to have some people that are interested in the, in the topic. And then, and then they have to be somewhat compelling and entertaining. What are your keys and your do's and your don'ts that are mandatory to have a good broadcast in your sense of the word? What are you listening for? What are you like in your broadcast besides the game prep? What things are you a stickler for when it comes to putting on a good broadcast? Uh, you know, you, you've already touched on the biggest one, which is the preparation, obviously. Um, but the uh, there, to me, as far as the actual broadcast, uh, there's a couple of different, you know, areas that you'd want to go into. Like when you're talking about a pregame show, you're talking about information that will help the listener uh, understand the concept of what's going to come up here in about an hour. Um, you know, so that's a little different than the actual, you know, play by play. So if you're properly prepared and you've done a nice pregame show, um, and, and, and everybody does different ones and in, in, in varying lengths and that sort of thing. Um, but I, I, I think it has to be, there has to be some, some new information. There has to be some, uh, uh instruction, if you will, or, or, you know, to, to, there has to be something that the listener learns from your pregame show that helps him understand what may or may not happen uh, coming up. So to me, that's that's important, and that can come in in, in many different forms. Uh, the the second thing is, if you're not describing the game properly, if you're not um, painting that picture on the radio, then you're not doing your job. So I think that's the that's the most important part is trying to find that balance between what stories, what stats that you get in without getting in the way of actually describing what's going on in the field. Uh, so to me, that's the most important thing. And, and the descriptive nature of your broadcast has to be, has to be spot on and it has to be, um, uh, it has to be varied. Uh, you know, what I try to do as much as possible is to, avoid getting into the same old trap of saying the same thing to describe different plays, if that makes any sense. Uh, every sure. play is different. Um, when I was doing baseball, a lot of people said, hey, how come you don't have a home run call? You know, how come you don't say whippity doo die every time there's a home run? Well, the reason is because every home run's different. And, 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 I'm, and I'm not being critical of guys that want to say the same thing every home run call. I mean, that's just, that's just not my style because some home runs go into a net, some home runs scrape the wall, some home runs hit the top of the wall, some home runs are just bombs that are still rolling, some home runs go one direction or the other. So I, I, I guess what I'm saying is I try to find different ways to describe some of the same 
things that you see on a quarter of the field. And, um, and then when you're doing that description, there are two things. There's the action of the ball. There's the action of the, uh, of, of, of the bodies, of the people, of the players. And then there's where is the ball. You know, so there are two or three different components in trying to describe, and you try to wind all of that into one big descriptive process uh, where you're painting that picture and, you know, the listener can know that the ball is on the left hash mark at the 32-yard line going from left to right, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing. Um, and then, you know, if you want to, if you want to really, uh, to me, Luther, if you want to really listen to a guy that I think is as good as anybody at doing that, Kevin Harlan is the guy. Definitely. He describes in minute detail, uh, it probably as well as anybody I've ever, ever, ever listened to. Uh, and, and he's a, you know, and I've, <laughs> I've joked with people. I think he's a freak the way he can describe <laughs> a game because I'll listen to him and I'll go, I can't, I can't believe that he can fit that much description into in a short amount of time in, into a simple punt, you know, and, and, and I, and I learn something from him every time I listen to him. But when you, when you hear him say, you know, something to the effect of, you know, it's a, it's a chest high snap and he swings the right leg into the ball in a spinning, tumbling punt high in the air, swirling into the air. And it's, you know, it's a two hand glove catch, you know, at, at the, at the shoulder pads by the receiver. And, you know, I mean, he's just so descriptive and, and, um, and, and it's just something that he has a great knack for. And, and I'm not saying I'm striving to be him because he's got his own style. What I'm saying is I really like the way he describes a game and he can make me understand the game better than anybody else I listen to. Is that the basic gist of when you're not doing a broadcast, what you're looking for in other broadcasts? Can, you know, can they draw you in and can you understand how they're calling the game? That's part of it. I mean, I, when I listen to guys, I'm also looking for um, some phrases maybe that I don't use, that I can use. Also, I look for efficiencies. Uh, for instance, a few years ago, listening to a basketball broadcaster, and as you're, as you're broadcasting a game and you're, you're talking about, let's say, something like shot clock, you know, it's 10 seconds on the shot clock. There's 15 seconds on the shot clock. Uh, and I hear a guy broadcasting, he goes, 10 to shoot, 7 to shoot. Uh, to me, that was a great, more efficient way to convey to the listeners that there's 10 seconds on the shot clock without having to say all of that. You know, um, So I think there are certain times that you can be a more efficient. Uh, sometimes fewer words can describe uh, something just as well or better. Uh, and so now, you know, when you're describing a basketball game, it's, you know, ball, ball at the right elbow, to five to shoot, you know, and then you don't have to, uh, you know, and you sometimes you establish your own, you know, some of your own styles and some of your own phrases, uh, depending on, say, where the ball is. Everybody has their own description of where on the court the basketball is. And, uh, um, and, and I, I will pick up some some stuff from guys that I listen to. It's like, oh, that's a pretty cool phrase to use. And, and if it fits, I'll use it. Do you think sometimes some broadcasters, as we you just discussed a second ago, either have too much information or have too many words in their broadcast that if they get rid of some of them, their broadcast would be more fluid instead of trying to jam everything in in one big, long conglomerate sentence? I think there's a tendency that that, that can happen some. Uh, and, and it... And what it is is that to me, it's a 
that's a kind of a delicate balance. You know, how much is too much? Because what I've just said earlier is, hey, you can never describe too much. Well, maybe you can sometimes. And I think it's a good point that sometimes guys jam in so much information that it's not that they're not prepared. They obviously are. And it's not that that's that, that it's information that's not important. It usually is. But can you process it? You know, can you, can you as a listener process all of that information? Uh, you know, if a guy says, uh, and, and I'm using a dopey example here, but if a guy says, you know, there's a shot from 15 feet out, it, it's good. He has 12 points, three of them here in the quarter and four in the half, you know, or whatever. Uh, you know, that's a lot of information jammed into about three seconds. And sometimes it's, it's not so much that, that, uh, that it's wrong or it's, you know, but, but what it is, it's, it's hard to process as a listener. So I think, I think some broadcasters do have to hold back a little bit and just make sure that, that people can, can uh, know and understand what they're saying in, in, the, in describing a game. So I don't think that happens a lot, but occasionally I'll hear a broadcaster that does that. And you've had a lot of coaches you've dealt with over the years. What have been, <clears throat> or let me try that again, who have been your favorite coaches you deal with and what have they brought to you as a broadcaster? Well, every coach is different. The first coach I had in basketball was Tubby Smith. He was great. Uh, he was, he was terrific. Um, and again, they're all different. They all have the, their idiosyncrasies. Um, Tubby was, Tubby was really good at adapting on the fly. Um, he knew where his program needed to go and where it was going and yet he was not too stringent and, and rigid to say, this isn't working, so we'll do this. You know, he was a really good, really, really good bench coach. Um, learned a lot from him because he was my first basketball coach in college. Um, and my first football coach uh, that I had was Dave Rader, and he was a really, really, really good guy and an intellectual. He's actually now in the state Senate here in the state of Oklahoma, so really, really smart guy. And uh, learned, learned a lot from him. Uh, I think what you learn as a broadcaster, if you've been doing it as long as I have, is that every coach is different and every coach has their own, their own style, their own idiosyncrasies. Uh, Bill Self was, was here at Tulsa for three years and he was the entire package. I mean, he was, he was everything uh, uh, that you want in a coach in terms of being able to, the X's and O's, the recruiting, the public relations, he's the entire package, no question. And, uh, I mean, he's the sort of guy that, uh, you know, in, in a five-minute period could make the janitor feel comfortable and then the, the university president, um, you know, in a, in, a, in, a same, in a same setting, you know. Uh, so he's, he, he's, he's all that, and, uh, and, and that's the reason why he's been so, so successful. So um, really enjoyed, you know, working, uh, working with him. But, uh, gosh, there have, been, there have been so many coaches that have, that have rolled through here. Uh, Steve Cragthorpe was one for Tulsa who was really good and kind of resurrected the program, if you will. And he was, he was uh, good to work with. Um, you know, a lot of folks have uh, differing opinions about Todd Graham. I loved him. I thought he was, he was great. Uh, you know, he won at Tulsa uh, and uh, you know, he, he did move on, but you know, he was a lot of fun while he was here, had a lot of energy. So, I mean, they're all, you know, they're all different. And you, the important thing as a broadcaster is you better figure out, what your coach is all about. You know, if your coach likes or doesn't like that or this, uh, then, then honestly, you have to adapt. You have to adapt, adapt what you're doing, you know, based on, 
based based on how you know your coach. And so that's that's an important thing for broadcasters to understand that, you know what, if 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 you think it's best that you do the interview at three o'clock, but your coach wants to do the interview at seven, guess what, folks, you're gonna do the interview at seven. <laughs> you know, that's just the way that is. And and you know, it's kind of the way it's the way athletics is set up. And so I mean, you know, usually you try to get a good relationship with 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 your with your coach if you can and uh if not you you just do the best you can to to get through it my you know the, the current basketball coach at Tulsa is Frank Haith he's terrific to work with you know Philip Montgomery the current coach at Tulsa is great you know so I mean there are times you go through periods where you have really good coaches and and then occasionally you'll have one that maybe you know you don't get along with as well or or whatever so it's you know it's it's something if you're at a place for a long time that you better be ready for different people, different shapes, different styles, different coaches. And you talked about the coaches shows earlier. Compared to, you know, then and now, like when you started doing the coaches shows and then doing the TV shows, is it still the basic concept still, or do you feel like there have been some things that have changed over the years as the, basically the conduit, to the Tulsa fan. Well, it's changed in so much as again, that information highway thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, and one thing that's changed on radio call in shows is the call in aspect. I mean, we don't, we don't really take calls anymore. And a lot of coaches don't take calls anymore. It used to be a way to kind of touch fans and that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, I think through the years, um, and, and we didn't have very many of them at Tulsa, but occasionally you get those silly phone calls and you're like, why are we doing this? So I think a lot of coaches have gone away from taking calls on the radio show. And that's, there's, that's not a, that's not a big deal. And how we, you know, how we get around that, if you will, is that we ask fans to write questions in or text questions in or email questions in, or, you know, fans right there can write, write a question on a napkin and, 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 you know, at the restaurant and send them in. So, I mean, you, you, you work around that. And that's one thing that's changed about the radio. And then on the TV side, I think there's a, there's a trend going away from the highlight show, the old traditional highlight show where a coach talks over the highlights and describes this play and that play back in the day in the sixties, seventies, eighties, you know, people didn't have a chance to see the game. Well, now they're seeing almost every game. So maybe less of an impact and less of a trend toward doing a lot of highlight coaches shows and maybe more toward features and that sort of thing on the, on the, uh, on the TV coaches show. I, I still think having the coach talk about certain plays is important, but it's less important to jam, you know, all 48 plays of the first half into a, into a highlight package when, when people have probably either seen the, either seen the game or live on, on TV, or they've seen all the highlights already, you know, on, on one of many different platforms. And I know I've probably taking up a lot more of your time. I know you probably have some other things to get to, but I know it took a while, but <clears throat> well worth it. Well, yeah. And I appreciate you uh, reaching out and uh, um, you know, it's, for anybody that it's out there and wants to broadcast, it's it's very competitive. But if you're able to do it, you're able to work hard. It's a lot of fun. I mean, it's you know, it's something that is as you may know from talking to guys is is <laughs> something you, you you don't feel like you're working. You feel like you're uh, you're enjoying what you're doing. And uh, you know, I, I I you you can't sub anything else for that. You know, no. being able to do what you love and 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 enjoy. Um, you know, broadcasting 
something you love to play back when you're a kid. And, and honestly, you're, you're lucky as heck because you're sitting in one of the best seats in the house and, and, uh, and you don't, and they actually pay you to do it. So it's a good thing. <laughs> well, I know I've got over an hour of your time and hopefully we'll get a chance to do this again. And hopefully either the new normal or somewhat back to normal C at some point, we'll actually hopefully get a chance to talk about games and, Things like Absolutely. that in the future, hopefully. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Yes, sir. That was the voice that's also Golden Eric King, Bruce Howard, for episode nine. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review to the Blind Broadcaster Podcast. <clears throat> and the details on how to reach us will be in the intro at the top of the broadcast. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.